Brands are unbelievably important, um, but people don't give a shit about them. If I look around my apartment now, I have Bounty kitchen roll on the top there. I don't give a shit about Bounty. I don't need to know what their purpose is. I don't want to know what their founder did. Um, I don't want to know where they make it. You know, ideally, it's not going to ruin the planet. I just needed to know enough about Bounty to know it's not shit. You know, McDonald's thrives because people know it's going to be okay. Like, people don't need to know that much about McDonald's other than it's going to be the same everywhere they go. And therefore, it's a very counterintuitive thing where brands are essential, but people don't need to know that much. Hello, and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur, investor, and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This week's episode is one of our least conventional. We usually speak to VCs and founders of unicorn companies, but today we're speaking to speaker, futurist and advisor Tom Goodwin. Tom is one of the most interesting people to follow on LinkedIn. He asks very thought-provoking questions about how the world works. He was former head of innovation at Zenith, head of futures and insight at Publicis, and now runs his own consultancy, All We Have Is Now. You can't speak to Tom and not be fascinated by how he sees the world. We had a lot of fun recording this episode and we think it's a great conversation. So let's get started. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. It's our pleasure. Um, so, Tom, we've had lots of guests on VCs, investors, founders, early stage employees, but we've never had someone quite like you. You've had some weird and wonderful job titles. Maybe you could explain what you do now in your own words. Yes, I always feel quite defensive when people ask me this question, and I'm never entirely sure how to answer it. But in short, I have come up through the world of architecture and advertising um, and technology. And my job now is really helping companies navigate the changing world. The landscape is full of people saying everything is different now. You know, what's your blockchain strategy? Um, You know, how can you grow a hundred times? And I try and be a sort of informed calming and sort of empathetic person that can sort of bridge the worlds of technology um, and business, but most of all people, um, and try to understand what opportunities there are that companies can really make the most of. Having looked at your profiles, I, I wasn't expecting a calming and empathetic person. And so, yeah, just, just kind of keen to hear what your view of venture capital is. How do you see us and the ecosystem? I was hoping you might ask me this. So I come to this with a very sort of loosely held opinions. I am aware I'm not in any way within the world of VC. I don't have any friends really that are in VC. And therefore, I probably should be more respectful and aware of what I don't know when I say this. But I think we've entered a really strange period of time where VC has become incredibly unimaginative and it's become a way to effectively analyze a very complicated world and to put companies in containers um, that are deemed to be the most safe 
investments. I think the entire world is based on sort of matrix like assessments of companies, um, which have absolutely nothing to do with problems that the world needs solving. It has absolutely nothing to do with amazing business opportunities that have never been tried. And instead, it's simply echoes of what's been done before. You know, so if I created two years ago, you know, an amazing, um, I know, chewing gum for dogs, you know, let's do some sort of saliva test. We analyze what dogs are missing out on. I create a chewing gum technology for dogs that allows your dog to have a lovely coat. You probably have about 18 different companies following a very, very similar recipe, throwing themselves around the world of VC quite soon, as long as my company was successful. So there seems to be absolutely no imagination, um, absolutely no empathy, absolutely no real ambition other than, you know, helping fund a company that can sell to a bigger version of that company anytime soon. And therefore, I get rather disappointed and, and perhaps a little bit angry about the fact that we're not really fueling the growth of companies that are particularly helpful to the world. I'm not some sort of granola eating sort of hippie type person. I want companies to make money. I want founders to get very rich. But it'd be nice to do that in a way that was somewhat, that you would be a bit more proud of. I, th I think the other thing I'd say is, I am absolutely staggered by how driven by the latest technology these things are. 10 years ago, every sort of company was pitching me on the basis that it was a sort of internet of things company. Then quickly things become sort of AI driven. You know, now if you've got Web3 in your prospectus somewhere, you're laughing or if you've got blockchain. And it just seems really pathetic. It seems incredibly stupid. Like most people actually couldn't give a shit how your company runs. They just care what you make. You know, if BMW has a wonderful car that has AI in it, great. I don't give a shit about the AI. I just care about the fact it's a good car. Yeah. No, I think it, no, it's good to hear your perspective. I think I recognize certain parts of it, but I think there is an alternative view. I mean, what VCs certainly aren't is marketers. And so maybe we need to do a better job there but i do think you know this is an important differentiation i think so not all vcs are created equal right so um so i think there are vcs who are just looking for a safe bet that are looking for a company to return like 3x and they need like 80 percent of their portfolio companies to return 3x that is a certain type of vc i think the great vcs who still today have an amazing name you know a lot of uk-based vcs but great vcs don't make their names investing in those sorts of companies, they make their names investing in category defining companies that truly are building the future. And I think those sorts of funds, and I include ourselves um, at episode one, we're backing moonshot companies that have a very high chance of failure. And that, you know, maybe one in 10 of our portfolio companies will go on to return 100x or 1000x. But we, we need to invest in those companies where we are very comfortable with the risks, understand that they will probably fail or at least will probably not return huge returns, but have a very small chance of returning an absolutely enormous amount. But I also think, you know, you talk about the lack of ambition in VC, which I think is interesting, but I haven't seen it. VCs are, as individuals, some of the most ambitious people I've come across. And as a pool of people, I think they're some of the most ambitious people I've come across. So just interested, yeah, to double click on, on your view there. I mean, I, I would say the ambition is is more appropriate synonym is, is, is sort of greed in a way. I mean, the ambition there is to perhaps change the world because you can make a ton of money from changing the world. I don't think the ambition is more related to pride. Uh, my, my sense is that when you see 
presentations from people at Sequoia or Anderson Horowitz or whatever. You know, they're they're boasting about how much money they made um, more often than they're boasting about companies that have made a meaningful difference to people's lives. And again, I want to be clear, when I'm talking about companies that make a meaningful difference to people's lives, I'm talking about Dyson that makes a vacuum cleaner that gives people quite a lot of joy. I'm talking about um, Airbnb, which actually lets people have a really nice time when they go away, you know, sometimes. So I think ambition, I'm defining more in terms of uh, pride of accomplishment and a sense of um, making a bit of a difference. And when it comes to, you know, you're talking about moonshots, I'm not talking about the fact that companies should be more risky or less risky. I'm talking about the fact that the way that risk seems to be calculated seems to be an analysis of the past. So if you can show that there are many other companies that have done this before, if you can show that the SaaS model works particularly well in this category, um, then that has been a very good way to reduce risk. But also, I would imagine that many of the risky ventures that you're backing are probably based on a similar analysis of that data. Just to challenge that, I don't think that's true. So, so certainly at the seed stage, there are very few comps. I mean, we're, we're certainly not looking at what valuation based on revenue, based on growth, you know, a, a similar company was. We're looking for companies that are differentiated, which by definition don't have accurate comparables. We are investing in things which we think are great ideas that will have mass appeal, that solve a pain point felt so strongly that people will pay a lot of money for them. And naturally, to your point, I do think VCs, particularly at the later stage, are looking at, okay, well, we've seen a company that's done this kind of revenue growth in this kind of stage before. This one's got the same sort of pattern. Let's invest in this. But actually, that's not just investing in a similar revenue growth. That revenue is a signal for a need being met by a product. And when you look at it like that, I think I think then you do start to to see that actually those kinds of metric-based investors are actually still do actually still have a place often those metrics are, are basically users often it's, it's revenue i can't comment on your companies and your company's approach and i'm very happy to go into specifics and we can talk about examples that you want to talk about to demonstrate your point um i'm talking about the vc more, world more generally the rush there has been to throw money at 15 minute delivery companies is insanely stupid and the fact that an example of a model that seems to be very successful is to basically go on holiday um, to Israel and find a company that's doing a good job of capturing market that share there. And then you take an identical model and take that to Romania or, or Finland or something. So, you know, that's why we end up with, you know, 273 versions of Uber around the world, because they're all trying to get bought by Uber having enough money to buy them locally. You can look at a movement like the movement towards e-scooters, where lots of VC firms threw money at something which I loved and I thought was a wonderful service to people, but was quite clearly critically flawed in many ways. You can look at the huge amounts of VC money that was thrown into direct consumer brands. You know, direct to consumer brands are a pretty um, obviously flawed concept in many, many categories. And yeah, VC firms would throw their money at premium scrubbers. Let's find a way to sell direct to consumer um, waste for people to clean their pots and pans. You know, let's create waterless toothpaste. And then you end up with about 139 different waterless toothpaste brands around the world because you can show an example of one company that two years ago grew their users very quickly. 
it seems very, very naive and completely recursive and has very little imagination or empathy or a real understanding of the future and how things will change. Certainly lots of dumb money out there. (laughs) (laughs) None of this is personal. It goes without saying that none of this is me talking personally to to you guys. Yeah, I think to to provide a neutral, boring perspective, there are good and bad, like any industry, like website developers or or agencies you know there are good ones and there are bad ones and there has been some dumb money and we're seeing a correction which i think is is sensible you've been vocal about the hype not always being a good thing and often overhyped things actually landing quite flat on their face you've just given a prime example of 15 minute delivery which i personally believe is completely absurd when you look at most of the companies that get funded and get talked about. Um, quite often they're a way for people a bit like us having this conversation and people like us listening to effectively replace their mum. It's designed for people with a little bit too much money and a little bit too little time who kind of wish they didn't have to do the things which are a bit annoying. You know, we kind of wish, you know, it was easier to get laid. We kind of wish it was easier to get our clothes washed. We kind of wish it would be easier to, to get pizza without having a mess. You know, it's a little bit awkward making phone calls. So let's make everything so you don't need to have a phone call. Tom, if you've got an idea to make it easier for people to get laid, I'm sure there are loads of, loads of users. <laughs> no, that's true. But the, uh, the question I wanted to get at was what question should companies and leaders ask themselves when assessing the new hype-led opportunity that has been landed on their desk? Someone's walked into their room and gone, are competitors doing this? We should be doing this. What question should they really be asking themselves? Uh, two questions. Um, one, what are the real unmet needs of people in the world right now and you can define people whatever you want you know depends how big you want your target audience to be but what are things that people have a genuine need for that they can't really do that's the first way to think about this stuff and it's a human thing you know human nature doesn't tend to change that much Um, and the second thing is what profound new technologies do we have that genuinely have a huge impact on the business sort of physics of a particular area. It's a bit like Kristen Clayton's theories of disruption, really. But what, how can technology genuinely make a profound difference to the sort of business model um, for the kind of cost dynamics, for the, the profit margin, et cetera? And really, when you look at companies that have made a big difference, it's companies that have done, you know, worked around one of those two things. Joking aside, you know, how can it be easier to meet people that I might want to spend more time with? Um, how can it be easier for me to find shelter? How can it be easier for me to get around? How can it be easier for me to learn? You know, these are very human things. The, but to work around the technology is where things get very, very exciting. You know, to realize that the combination of a mobile phone and a GPS chip and a big screen and touch screens and you know 3g it was that combination um that led to the incredible proliferation of huge companies around about 2007 to 2011. and um, incidentally we've seen very remarkably few interesting companies launch since about 2012. but when people start working around the sort of the power of a profound technology with your memory being on people and how they behave that's where really exciting things happen a lot of people will put out that because we're sort of in a recession at the moment. A lot of people will put up that graphic of these are the companies that were 
founded in 2008. So like get your money out and start investing in startups. Um, how much do you think is actually they came out of a recession and there was sort of an opportunity? And how much is it down to that just core availability of this new technology that ultimately sprung them up in that time period? In that particular example, it was nothing really to do with the fact there was a recession, in my personal opinion. Recessions are wonderful times to start new companies um, because you can get access to better talent. You know, it's been extremely hard for companies to recruit really good people recently. It's easier to buy office space, you know, because offices still are important. It's easier in some ways to get people to take risks. You know, we've had so much free money going around the world recently that in order to make 10, 15, 20, 25% per annum, it's been seen as being quite feasible to do that in quite traditional ways. The moment a recession comes along, you know, cash gets tight, but at the same time, there are just people that think, fuck it, you know, I'm going to lose money if I invest in six legs, so I might as well lose money on this crazy news personalized uh, dog toothpaste um, company. So I think normally the, the, the general rule of receptions being good for business is definitely a, a true thing. And, you know, that goes back a long time. You know, if you look at the 1930s, if you look at the sort of mid 1800s, um, you know, crashes are generally good for sort of disruptive innovation because people start to focus and think a bit more. Um, but, yeah, that list of, of companies, I've been writing about that list of companies that launched between 2007 and 2012 for a long time. I was there, you know, I was helping Nokia launch the N95 we suddenly saw that this combination of stuff had happened together, which effectively created, you know, in sort of evolutionary terms, it created like a new sort of planet for pioneering species to emerge onto. Um, and if you could be the first person to reinvent the yellow pages, if you could be the first person to reinvent ordnance survey maps, if you could be the first person to figure out what TV would mean, um, you basically get first to market advantage. And it's very hard now. Like if you ask people what was the last app they downloaded that made a big difference to their life, people have to think quite a long way back. I just can't believe you don't think there's been any interesting companies since 2012. Because I think, you know, without having thought about this, but driverless cars, drone delivery, so much of social media, creator economy, all of these companies which have spelled a profound change to the way we live and, and our lives, I, I do think are interesting. How has drone delivery changed your life? So it hasn't changed mine. So drone delivery brings down the cost of end delivery, which ultimately brings down the cost of you know delivering pharmaceuticals, prescriptions, whatever you want, which actually, like when you scale that out across the globe, um, has a huge impact on people's lives, particularly in developing countries. Is it feasible yet? Yes. If you live in Ireland, can't remember the name of the company, but you can have your KFC delivered to your garden by drone. And that's rolling out pretty quickly. KFC is not the main use case in the long run. It's not rolling out pretty quickly. I mean... Amazon first did a press release about this in 2007, and they did it because there was a lot of pressure on Amazon because they weren't really um, paying tax. But all of a sudden, the moment all this pressure came on them about not paying tax and treating their workers badly, lo and behold, someone found something really, really exciting to sort of sacrifice, like sacrificial rusting. And all of a sudden, everyone's attention moved to that because everyone loves talking about Rwanda and Zipline. You know, everyone loves talking about Chipotle delivering one burrito to someone once on a Singaporean construction site. But the fact is that these things have been around for a very long time. I, I think driverless cars are amazing. I live in Miami where we have the most advanced driverless cars in the world. One of my very good friends is the sort of tech evangelist for some of these companies. So I know what I'm talking about. But um, these things may be quite a long way away. 
Yeah, no, and, and it's a fair point, but I think most of the great ideas are simply about timing. You know, people thought of driverless cars 50 years ago and, you know, all of these great ideas go through the typical adoption curve, right? Early adopters, then eventually the mass market. And, and it's just a question of how quickly you can get to the mass market. But I've been reflecting on what you said about your frustrations with VCs and, and so much money going after crap companies. And, you know, I agree lots of the 15 minute grocery delivery investment has been a, a waste of money. And I do just want to touch again on dumb money, because I think what you might be saying is, that actually, if a lot of this dumb money, of which there is a huge amount, if some of that dumb money that's going into the 17th grocery delivery company or the waterless dog toothpaste, in fact, instead went into funding some breakthrough technology that helps detect cancer earlier or something like that, then maybe maybe that is the change you're after? No, precisely. I think um, my, my concern about all the dumb money I know there are several parts to it. One is um, it sort of has created a culture really where starting a new company is almost like the new gap year. And I sound so miserable because for many years I'd go to Sir House and you'd see all these people on laptops and you'd think, this is amazing. Like, look at these really young people. Look at these people that look quite different to each other. You know, you'd go to Starbucks and you'd see people have meetings um, and it'd be lovely. And then over time, I started sort of getting pitched by these companies and I started asking them incredibly easy questions they didn't have any answers to. And I realized that there was a lack of sort of discernment in a way. Everyone needs to have a really, really, really good um, best friend or mum that loves you so much, they're quite happy to tell you that you're wasting your time. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily have that relationship with people. There are a lot of people sort of chasing their dreams that, you know, if only they can be the 193rd company to launch personalized vitamins, you know, it's going to be their day because Gary V once replied to their email. And I think we need a bit more discernment and we need a little bit more sort of focus on, on normal people, really. I, I would love there to be an easier way for people to get a babysitter. That doesn't seem to be an app that that many people are excited about funding. I'd love that bit to be an easier way to uh, meet people that are near you. You know, this was a big thing around 2009, like solo mo. But now seems like a good time after the pandemic to really celebrate sort of spontaneous ways to meet each other. It'd be great to find a, an easier way to um, find events that are going on near you. Someone should be funding something to smash the cartel of tickets for events. I don't think blockchain is a great way to send money abroad. There must be a few companies that can make lots and lots of money undercutting Western Union, charging about 10% to send money to Colombia. We don't need new technology to do this stuff. Like I, I think drone deliveries are lovely. I think that AI is amazing. I think that robotics is transformative. I think that quantum computing will be amazing. But I also think that databases that talk to each other are amazing. I think that people who create better front-end experiences are amazing. I think design is amazing. I think between 3G, which I think we've had for 10 years now, and a normal iPhone, you know, you could actually create real-time transit information on buses in every city around the world just by hacking together a solution. So I'm not in any way nostalgic. I'm not in any way miserable about the future. I just think we have an enormous opportunity by more thoughtfully combining all of the technology that we have at our disposal right now. And I get a bit frustrated when I don't see that happening more. Some of those problems that you mentioned, I think there are some startups working on them. We had Koru Kids on who are doing some stuff around nannies and babysitters. So 
That's a good episode. But I, I get your point. So when people see a 15-minute delivery company raise 200 million at a 1.6 billion valuation with very seemingly little demand or market need or they're just paying for acquisition and you know it's just madness really people get quite angry but should they and this is the question because if it's not their money but it's creating economic growth through agencies that then work for that company employment for those people that go and work for that company all the SaaS that that business uses that's other companies being supported from having this client is it, should people be as angry as they get? Because actually there are a lot of other businesses and individuals that are kind of benefiting from this company, getting a load of money and then burning it. <laughs> so should people get as angry? I mean, they shouldn't really, because for one, this is private money. So it's not like they're sort of pension funds and they're going to vanish if, you know, these apps don't turn out to work. So not really. I mean, um, if I was going to pick holes and fundamentally you're kind of right. One is a lot of the money just goes to big tech companies anyway. Every time you see a high cat cost, it just means money's going to Facebook. I'm not going to call them Meta because that's dumb. Um, or it means it's going to Google. That's not in, intrinsically bad, but it's not going to the sort of local, you know, woman that's trying to get someone to sponsor her barbecue. But I think more than anything else, uh, somehow it just seems to be sending out a little bit of a signal. It's kind of effectively describing the sort of logic you need to use to get funding. You know, like Mark Law, I think, got about $350 million a few weeks ago to, you know, grow Wonder, which is effectively a sort of food truck business for New Jersey. And you could look at that and you could think, well, if a fairly bad idea like that, that's not in any way new, that's unlikely to make any money ever, um, you know, if that can get $350 million, then, you know, my company to create smart blinds that allow people to cut down their energy use at home and allow people to have automated light and dark that helps them wake up in a nicer way. You know, if I need $50 million for that, then it's probably quite easy for me to get it. But unfortunately, perhaps the more money that goes towards formulaic ideas like that, the more money that goes towards people that have a track record of a successful exits, you know, the more money goes to well-connected people. You know, I worry that that means the money doesn't find its way to people with amazing ideas that don't start their investor decks with their own credentials of success. That makes me think that it's going to be harder for companies to say, look, you know, there's this amazing new cleaning fluid that actually is a, you know, a bleach that lasts for five times longer. It means it's going to be harder for them to raise money because people are saying, oh, look, you know, we're actually just looking for companies in the fast delivery space at the moment. I think that's interesting. And you might be right. I think there are also, if you imagine the founders and ideas, there's a sort of stack ranking of the very best founders and best ideas getting funding and the very worst founders and the very worst ideas probably aren't getting funding. And there's a cutoff point somewhere. And I think the problem is excess capital has been for the last few years. And the best founders with great ideas get funded. I, I don't know where you're seeing these amazing ideas that don't get funded, but please send them our way. Because, you know, we're, we're there's a lot of smart people with a lot of money to invest in great ideas. I think it's more there'll be a whole cohort of people that just imagine this isn't really their world. And this isn't really a conversation about sort of diversity or equality or anything like that. I just think that there is a sort of palpable sense that to get funding, you know, you probably need to live in this fairly constrained channel. 
something that I'm almost definitely wrong on, by the way, but I'm going to say anyway, is it amazes me how many um, presentations by startups start with the people. You know, when I was helping publicists create an innovation pipeline, I really couldn't give a fuck who the people were. Um, I couldn't give a fuck how old they were. I didn't care where they worked before. What university they went to was the least interesting thing about them. I wanted to know what the idea was. You know, we help make better advertising using the gyroscopic sensors in your phone, which means that ads can come alive when you turn your phone. That's an amazing idea. I don't care if you lived in Slough all your life, you know? The reason we care is not because of the university or the company that they studied or worked at before in and of itself. It's that we're in the business of looking for signals and we're in the business of finding truly standout people who, by the way, might have been to a top university and might have risen up the ranks of an incredibly successful company really quickly. And actually, it's not those things in and of themselves that allow them to get funding. Caveat, sometimes it is, and that's wrong. It's the signal that that actually offers to an investor. It says, well, these people were surrounded by incredible other people and those incredible other people decided to promote this person really quickly so that's a signal that actually they're pretty amazing i mean that's a whole debate and a whole fun debate in itself but i think what's um what's interesting about what you do with your business all we have is now um and actually what we do as vcs is quite similar we're both looking at where we think the world is going to be in 10 years the difference is that we're investing in the people making that change you're advising people how to adapt in the face of those changes. And so I just think it's interesting. Do you have the same frustrations with clients who are focusing on resource in the wrong areas, who are focusing resource on things which you feel are pointless, non-impactful? Do you have those same frustrations? Yeah, I think in a way I'm, I'm more frustrated with the world, in a way, without wanting to sound like some tormented person. You know, when you talk about um, people's backgrounds and um, histories being important. What we're all really doing as human beings is within a corporate environment, it's really important that you don't look like you did something rash. It's really important that you can explain that you went through a logical series of steps. And, you know, recruitment in advertising always wants people to have a degree because it's a really, really easy way to get rid of 50% of applicants in a way that no one can ever really argue against. You know, no one can say it's discriminatory. Um, No one can say that you're being unfair. But what things like this does, it sort of removes the chance of really radical stuff from happening. So asking people to fit into a sort of process and fit into a system of judgment, which is largely about making sure people don't look stupid. Also, you know, it removes a lot of the work. It removes a lot of the, the risk, but it also removes the chance of really, really amazing things happening. And I think um, I get slightly frustrated by the fact that effectively we have a sort of corporate environment, which is very much based on doing the same things again and again and again, perhaps getting more efficient over time, uh, rarely taking big risks, rarely doing anything particularly new, and just sort of conceding in a way that they won't ever um, do anything that remarkable. There are exceptions, you know, Telefonica and Gifgaf, uh, Nespresso from uh, Nestle, etc. Um, and then you have the sort of startup environment, which seems to be very much the tech environment. You know, the idea that you might, I don't know, have clothes that fit. You know, it'd be quite nice to go online and buy a pair of sneakers and find out they're actually um, precisely the same size as the last pair of sneakers from the same company. 
it would be nice to buy the same pair of jeans again. You know, we've all bought a pair of jeans, fallen in love with them, and then a year later they've fallen apart and we can't find the same things again. And those are not really technology solutions. You know, those are those are more based around an understanding of people and their needs. So I get a little bit frustrating that the world of technology is always about, you know, how many exits they've had before, whether they go to university, what technology are they using. I think you absolutely make a fair point. And I, I think it is important that VCs get better at not just investing people with a good work history with some nice VC-backed startups on their CV, because you know that is a problem at the moment. But all I'm saying really at its crux is that you can have the best idea in the world, and unless you're an extraordinary person, you won't build a billion-pound business. You give that idea to someone who is extraordinary, and they might very well be able to create a billion pound business. And that, to your initial question, is my answer of, you know, why do VCs look so closely at the individual rather than the idea? The idea is table stakes. It needs to be a good idea. We're not going to take a second look if it's not. But we're not just going to invest in an idea. I mean, as an industry, it has invested in an incredible number of extremely bad ideas, you know, whether it's Theranos, whether it's Juicero, you can argue about WeWork. But Theranos was an amazing idea. It just didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess as a hope it was, as, as a reality. Yeah. Well, I, I think the industry has invested in bad people, bad ideas, bad everything at certain points in different realms. But I, I had a point around the, the backing of more ambitious ideas which is that I think that venture has got very good at going, show us that it's working and then we'll give you more money to do what's working times 10. And, and I actually think that that isn't that ambitious and exciting. I think what venture used to be is we've got this idea on how we want to change the world, but we need a bucket of money to go and work out how we actually do that. And I think the VCs now are scared of that because it is that is super risky and that is taking on a lot of risk and the reward is almost the same as other people coming along going I've figured out my three to one LTV CAC ratio and I just need to scale this up and it will be three to one forever basically and um, and so VCs go great I know I'm going to get a 10x there and I don't have to take the risk of the 2000x opportunity that could be over here for someone to go and figure out how to do something extraordinary and so i think that's where ventures maybe slightly created a vanilla version of its own of its own self that sort of explains where we are i mean the reason why there probably are 20 different direct-to-consumer um toilet paper brands right now is because there was one that did a really good job and they had a real-time dashboard and they saw if they spent money there and they convert a little bit better in the funnel there and they spend this much extra on on newsletters and you basically get a sort of um, a best practice playbook and then other companies follow that and people it's quite easy again without a sense of risk personally to back you know the third biggest direct-to-consumer water company because you can see that the playbook has worked before in the sense that companies have made revenue not necessarily profit and you know in a way maybe i'm being unfair in these discussions because maybe Maybe, maybe problems with VC are actually more about me criticizing what the industry could be rather than what it's supposed to be. And perhaps this is what it's supposed to be. Perhaps this is just one of the cogs in the machine that is funding. 
you know, and maybe um, it's more on banks to give small business loans. Maybe it's more on companies to bootstrap themselves. Maybe there should be another type of, of VC, which is perhaps more um, I don't know, rooted in, in higher risk strategies or something. I mean, the other thing, and, and this is deeply unfair, but everything has to be very big in VC. Like, you know, unless you're kind of going to be a unicorn, then, you know, your company is not really worth investing in. There, there are lots of companies that could be wildly successful and extremely profitable, um, but never become particularly big when it comes to market capitalization. And it may happen quite slowly as well. And perhaps now the interest rates are very different. Perhaps there'll almost be a, a renewed sense that you can invest in things that give, I don't know, 50% return every year on year rather than 500. I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, VCs do want massive outcomes, but we were talking about at the start those sorts of VCs who are happier with a faster than public market, but not necessarily kind of moonshot type returns. But I think the, you know, the 17th D to C toilet paper brand that you mentioned, I think that's personally the job of the banks to fund and of alternative finance providers. And I think we're getting to that point now where the data is available and we know how to use the data effectively enough to predict cash flows going into the future which means that they're actually a fundable asset with debt. And that, that's been really good to see because you're getting more of these companies, which I think fall into the bucket that you're talking about of, you know, very predictable investors just investing based off metrics and, you know, upticks in revenue and all that stuff. And actually those very predictable businesses are what should be funded with banks money and with debt. And the, the moonshot bet should be left to VCs. The problem is though, VC is sexier than having a bank loan from Barclays. So the human side of the founder goes, I'd much rather have this amazing VC that says no to most people. So I get some social status from them saying yes to me than getting a loan from Barclays, which I have to pay back, even if it makes me richer. I'd rather do that. And that, and that's where the industry also needs to continue to educate founders about what is actually important and raising money isn't the end goal. It's a it's a milestone and you should only be doing it if you are trying to completely change the world in your specific category. So that's why things like this podcast are important because we have to keep trying to drum that into people. <laughs> no, exactly. For me, it's all about the culture. And again, I'm not in the industry, so all I see is, is how it sort of interfaces with the world. And, you know, I'm a bit of a journalist and you know, when you see countless articles written about valuations and essentially none written about profitability. I mean, when was the last time you saw a startup that was uh, celebrated for its profitability? And obviously that's because many don't try because the moment you try and make money, it kind of makes you a different investment category. The moment you try and make money, it's seen as being a lack of ambition by the marketplace in some ways. But it'd be wonderful if there was at least half an eye on companies that are not worth a ton of money, but do an amazing job and have extremely well-paid staff who are very proud to accomplish what they do. And they make tons of money. It'd be nice to celebrate companies that have found a really interesting niche and incredibly profitable um, and doing something which is worthwhile, as well as companies that are worth a ton of money for absolutely no reason whatsoever. There's Sorry, there's like a self-selection thing going on because the companies that are really profitable don't need funding. And part of all of the noise that's created around companies that do need funding is to get their next round of funding. So it's like, you know, the bootstrap companies that are profitable don't bother with making loads of noise. So you don't read about them. So there's also kind of whatever bias it is, availability bias or whatever, whichever one it is. So I think that, I mean, there are so many things at play here. Just to add to that a little bit. So also bit, raising a 
it's how you're received from what you announce. So if you announce you've just raised money, you get bombarded by recruitment firms, SEO agencies, whatever, but no one's having a go at you for raising money. They're going, well done, can we have some of it? But if you announce you're super profitable, you're at risk of your clients potentially going, I want to negotiate my fee, like why, you know, you're killing this industry, you're taking away money from other businesses. It's that like fear of being exposed for being successful, um, which you don't get from raising a round. You're successful, but you're allowed to sort of shout about it and everyone will come knocking at your door asking for some of it. And it's just kind of like a weird perception around what you can and can't talk about. It, it's logical. I just don't think it's that helpful. Because... No, it's not. Particularly for young founders coming through who, who've seen that and they idolize it. And what we will probably see in the next two or three years is a bit of a shakedown. And um, we will see that most of these companies, even ones that are very well celebrated now, you know, like I look at a company like Glossier, you know, an amazing job. I'm not sure if there's that much there, you know, whether it's a WeWork, whether it's a Bird Scooters, even Airbnb, you know, we have... Uh, not as much faith in their long-term ability to make vast sums of money like they're valued based on, uh, value based on. And it'll, it'll be very interesting to see what happens when a whole tranche of direct-to-consumer companies fail, what happens when very sexy buy-now-pay-later companies all you know, crash and burn. Perhaps there will be a sort of um, like a renewed sense of companies that should be invested in because they're a little bit more robust in some ways, and perhaps they're based on slightly more um, realistic understanding of human nature and the sort of gravity of unit economics. But at this moment in time, it still seems like you can say, oh, you know, we're going to make it up by selling user data. And that seems to sort of get you out of any situation in the same way that making it up in volume used to, you know, 15 years ago. Um, you know, you can say it's going to be different because we're going to use AI, you know, and people seem to think that that gives plausibility to any growth projections. So I think, not not in a negative way, I think it's a very positive thing, but I think the next two or three years could see a bit of a sort of rationalization hitting the marketplace, which will probably lead to another generation of much more interesting companies. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Tom, we've covered quite a lot about how VCs think and what we're looking at and where some mistakes are being made and things like that. We have a lot of founders that listen to the podcast as well, and you advise lots of businesses on strategy and innovation and things like that. So it'd be good to try and pick out some themes that we can talk about to um, really help founders think about what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. I wanted to start with brand building, because as someone that's worked in marketing, I think brand is something that is really hard to measure, but we all know has an impact on purchasing behavior. And I think creative agencies can often get sort of quite self-proclaiming about their impact and things like that. So quite nice to start with brands, which founders drive. They drive the the soul of their brand from day one often. And people that outsource it, I think, never have a brand. Um, So what do you think founders could be doing, should be doing now to build better brands for their early stage businesses? This sounds like a sort of cheat of an answer, but I really think having a strong product is by far the most important thing. And ideally you're not competing in a parity marketplace where the size of your brand really matters. 
you know, companies like P&G and Unilever, they're able to sustain their margins because they funnel an absolute fortune into advertising every year. But it would be much better to be a Red Bull than ever really had to to start with. It'd be much better to be a method than ever really had to. If, if you have a product that's even slightly different and slightly interesting, effectively your advertising is sort of multipled by a magical power of function. The other thing to keep in mind is brands are unbelievably important. Um, but people don't give a shit about them. If I look around my apartment now, I have Bounty kitchen roll on the top there. I don't give a shit about Bounty. I don't need to know what their purpose is. I don't want to know what their founder did. Um, I don't want to know where they make it. You know, ideally, it's not going to ruin the planet. I just needed to know enough about Bounty to know it's not shit. You know, McDonald's thrives because people know it's going to be okay. Like, people don't need to know that much about McDonald's other than it's going to be the same everywhere they go. And therefore, it's a very counterintuitive thing where brands are essential, but people don't need to know that much. And I think um, the world of, of sort of VC-backed companies is interesting because I think a lot of companies ignore brands and they sort of think of them as being a bit mysterious and magical and not really that rational. The, the fact is that human beings are not rational. So every time you're being irrational, you're being quite helpful. And then the other half of brands care about brands too much and... You know, there'll be all these sort of direct consumer waffle irons, you know, where you get a story about how the founder, you know, was in the Egyptian pyramids and how, you know, it suddenly came to them that the world needed a better way to make waffle irons. No one ever cares that much about brands. So probably be thinner, uh, be more clumsy. Um, targeting actually is is less helpful when it comes to brand building than people think, because the reason why brands work is because you know that other people know about them. If my girlfriend wants me to buy her a Loewe handbag, she needs to know that all the girls around her realizes that's an expensive handbag. As a guy, I need to know that's an expensive handbag, otherwise I'm going to feel bad about buying it. Um, so branding is about width much more than depth. But those, those are the sort of headlines. I could obviously talk for about five hours about it, but now's not the time. I think the brand stuff's interesting because it is hard to measure and it's hard to derive like causality between a move that you make with your brand and your bottom line. And I think hopefully we'll get to a point where you can actually draw that link, but could honestly talk for hours and we would love to talk for hours, but we have to draw the show to a close. And as you know, we always like to ask our guests to invite three people to an imaginary dinner party. Um, and they can be anyone, they can be dead or alive. So who, who would your three guests be? I, quite, I don't know Russell Brand that well. And I don't know what he's talking about these days, but he sort of jumped to me as being someone that would be quite lively and would probably see things in different ways. You know, I really like people that have a different perspective on stuff. Um, so I think I have him, maybe Michael Palin. Just he's got to have the best stories, doesn't he? He must just have incredible stories. And then maybe a sort of early explorer type, like maybe sort of Verrazano or, or Cook or something. Just someone that had courage. I don't want to sound sort of cheesy, but I do think um, it's been a recent thing for me, actually, where I realize everyone seems very scared, actually. Everyone seems very worried about stuff all the time. And everyone seems like they're sort of living their life like one big risk reduction exercise. And I can't remember where the quote's from. I think it's from um, Alain de Botton. But, you know, we should never underestimate the risk of living an unremarkable life. It's one of his favorite quotes of mine. And I just think we'd be much better off really trying to have a wild and wacky and crazy unexpected life driven by courage you know rather than to sort of aim for a slightly bigger tv and a slightly more expensive hotel in next year's vacation so that's really interesting it's going to be a great dinner and i like that philosophy to end 
yeah, Tom, thank you so much for coming on Riding Unicorns. There's some really great quotes in there and a lot of themes for founders and investors and everyone to go away and think about in a little bit more detail. So yeah, thank you again for coming on. Nah, my pleasure. Thanks, Hector. Thanks, James. It's been a really good conversation. Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.